This podcast begins with a seemingly simple question. What is Canadian Christianity? I suppose to ask this question is to assume that there is, in fact, such a thing as a distinctively Canadian identity. One that is deeper than being meek-mannered Americans who express patriotism in terms of their emotional attachments to hockey, beavers, mounties, and maple syrup. Beyond the stereotypes, to be Canadian is to inhabit a space of tension, and even contradiction, as countless disparate identities exist and seek to find expression within the same shared land. A land of colonizers and survivors, immigrants and refugees, the rural and the urban alike. Even as I record this in a small town outside of Calgary, Alberta, I have to acknowledge that I'm within the traditional territory of the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Kenai, Pekani, Siksika, as well as the Tsutina and Stony Nakoda First Nations. People whose ancestral and cultural connections to this land stretch back thousands of years before my great-great-grandparents first thought to settle here. This reality alone means that I can't pretend that my experience, or that of my immediate community, is definitive of the whole of what it is to be Canadian. If it is possible to speak of a collective Canadian identity, it must be from the vantage point and in conversation with this multi-layered complexity. Now, if this great pluralosity lies at the heart of the collective Canadian identity, how much more might this be true of a Canadian Christianity? For better or for worse, this is a tradition which is already inseparably embedded within our seemingly secular shared cultural space. It's woven into the fiber of our legal structures, ceremonies, and language, and in the 154 years since Confederation, to say nothing prior, has bound up divine dominion from sea to sea with the ideals of egalitarianism and peaceable order no less than the actions of cultural genocide and ecological exploitation. Nevertheless, Christianity is far deeper and broader than any one of the many expressions which have found cultural dominance over the course of history, here or elsewhere. In all of its contradictory capacity for ugliness, Christianity nevertheless holds the potential, not only for a scathing critique of this ugliness, but also for a compelling revelation of beauty and transformative oneness as its communities grow to creatively embrace the way of infinite self-giving love within their particular contextualizations of time, place, language, culture, cosmology, technology, and story, filling them without being exhausted by them. And so again, the question, Taking in all of the nuances and complexities implicit within our context, what is Canadian Christianity? What is it to be Canadian Orthodox? The purpose of this show is not to define a new denomination or dogma. Instead, very simply, as best as we are able, we want to create a space of conversational hospitality to draw out thoughtful voices and creative expressions across the traditional spectrum of Christianity. 
we invite you to listen with us. Explore, question, and hopefully, in some meaningful way, grow with us as we seek to expand our understanding and practice of the Christian faith within the unique intersections of our Canadian context. My name is Tim Harder, and this is the Canadian Orthodox. So to kick things off, I, I want to take some time with this episode to fill out some of the conceptual background to this show. And to do that, we'll be featuring a conversation that I recorded with two of my dear friends, Chris and Doug. Hey, I'm Chris Carndeff. And I'm Doug Brown. The show is really an extension of our conversations, both as the as the three of us, but also within our wider friend group. And in many ways, it's it, it was the wrestling with a lot of these ideas, late nights after young adults group or at the coffee shop outside of Ambrose University that, that really brought us together as a group of friends in the first place. The three of us, we, we occupy different traditional spaces within the church, both in terms of our experiences, but also kind of our differing paths and approaches to the understanding and exploration of Christianity. So Chris is born ecumenical in that his family includes both Irish Catholics as well as Irish Protestants. And he's been baptized in the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, the Alliance Church, as well as most recently, the Greek Orthodox Church of which he's currently a part. So I guess out of any of us, Chris, <laughs> Chris has his bases covered. Doug grew up as a missionary kid in Brazil connected to the Independent Baptist as well as the Alliance Church. And uh, I guess now he's he's non-denom in the truest sense of the word in that he, he doesn't attend church. <laughs> but his understanding of Christianity has been um, deeply informed by his study of early monasticism. For me, growing up, a lot of my family context of faith was simultaneously informed by the charismatic movement as well as the conservatism of the Christian homeschool movement. Since then, as an adult, I came to uh, serve as a youth and worship pastor for a number of years at um, my local church at the time, connected to the Canadian Church of God. And this was kind of like an, an Anabaptist, non-denominational community. I suppose in a lot of ways, my approach to all of this has been informed by my academic discipline in biblical studies. And although I, I, I tend to resist labels, if you were to ask my wife, I'm kind of like a pseudo Mennonite brethren who really likes the Book of Common Prayer. Although we are each approaching this conversation from differing vantage points, we each share a common passion for the informed contextualization of theology and practice within the grounded realities that we inhabit. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you guys. And with that, let's, uh, let's just dive right in. I'll never forget the first time that I mentioned the words Canadian Orthodoxy to to Tim. Um, we were at the brand new Southview Alliance Church building, and we had just played some music um, for the young adults group there. And we were lying on the stage after like all the lights were down, and just, like everybody was going home and stuff. We've yeah. been there for a few hours, and we were talking about Christianity in, in general and, and how each one of the expressions we ran into all fit into these different historical frameworks that came specifically out of different ethnicities, how, you know, Anglicanism can only be from the angles, right? So like it has to, 
it comes from a very deeply English understanding of what the world is um, and how that, how, you know, Catholicism is still very, it's still Roman Catholicism, but even within that Catholicism thing, there are these different parts of Catholicism, which, you know, are inherently their own kind of ethnic understanding, right? Like if you go to Brazil, you're going to get a different kind of Catholic understanding than if you go to Germany. And we were talking about how these things were forming each other. And then, then the question came up, it's like, well, like what does Canadian or Christianity look like? And we were talking about like American Christianity and like this American expression of, of evangelicalism and like of prosperity gospel and these, these things that, I mean, we're both Canadian. So these things that we were like very much, you know, very much ripping on and these, these things that were like, oh, these Americans and how wrong they're doing it. Um, we're not immune for the sin of pride, I suppose. Um, but within that, we were thinking like, well, then how does Can Canadian culture differs? And Canadian culture is also this kind of grouping of all these people. So how does Canadian Christianity form? I know for me, it fit extraordinarily well with what I was exploring as far as Christianity at the time. Of course, um, at Ambrose at that point, I was doing quite a bit in my history degree. And I was you know, trying to focus as much on like pre-modern history as I could. And every time I could you know, take something from the first millennia, be it the Vikings or early Christian history, um, made it quite clear that there's these threads of history that led to these major events, right? Taking those classes really helped to reform and reshape a lot of what I was thinking about. But that couldn't have happened unless I was extraordinarily disillusioned with the evangelical church. Um, but I didn't really know where else to go. So I started going to a Catholic church. And that was better. But then I went to a Greek Orthodox church. Um, and my eyes were just like blown wide open. There was a different kind of expression and a different kind of importance about the whole thing than I had ever seen before. And that's what started me down this path, really, was that I knew that I was in a Greek church. When I was in, when I was in a Roman Catholic church, I was in very much a, a, a European, a Western-centric European expression of, of Christianity. When I was in the Greek mm -hmm. church, I was in a Greek understanding of that. But then I started getting onto this thing about, as Doug says, me and my stories of Ireland. I started getting onto this thing of like, well, like, how did the Irish get Christianity? And you start to find out that the Irish form of Christianity, or at least as my Greek, as a Greek priest, which I ran into once said, that Greek, that Irish Christianity was far, far closer to Greek Christianity, Greek Orthodoxy than, than Roman Catholicism. And it only became Roman Catholic because the schism had already happened. And then the Normans come in and invade, you know, Ireland and Constantinople were on opposite sides of the of the world, essentially, at that point, or at least in their understanding. Heck, they might as well have been on different planets. They were that far apart, right? But once you start exploring these things about, you know, this is how their expression went. You know, this is how the Irish had Christianity. And, like, the mm. cultural war, I mean, sometimes the real wars that happened between the Irish Christians and the English Christians. And what that meant for the development of those different things and how Irish Catholicism is still this very interestingly different thing than the rest of Roman Catholicism. And it's from that conversation, for me at least, that it went, well, we're in this world, we're in this Canada place where we have all these people interacting with each other. Christianity, when done really right, it goes somewhere and it integrates into the cultural expression and the spiritual expression of that new culture and of that place. It's this thing that is truly universal in that 
every time we every time we come across a new group of people, they inform our Christianity. It's not the opposite way around. We don't have to we don't assimilate we don't have to assimilate them to our form of Christianity. Indeed, we have to add their understanding of this Christianity to our own in order that we may be saved. And that I think is a really interesting question of, well, what does what does a place like Canada do with that? A place that was the you know almost epicenter of these colossal uh, colonialist genocides. You know, some of the the worst crimes anybody could possibly commit happened here, and there isn't one culture here anymore. Even like we have Canadian culture, and we certainly do, but. That Canadian culture is, you know, it's only what, maybe 50 years old, really? I suppose if I was a lot kinder, I would say it's 150 years old, but I sorry, I'm not gonna buy that what John A. McDonald thought this country would be is the definition of Canadian culture. Mm-hmm. Um so that being said, because of the extraordinary diversity of Canada, what does it mean for a Canadian, not just a Canadian culture to emerge? But what does that mean for a Canadian cultural expression of Orthodox Christianity? Once you start asking that question of like, well, we have to let in other understandings, then what does that mean when you're in a place that suppressed one understanding so heavily and still can't get all the other voices straight? And how does that merge into itself? And that's really what this question comes down to for me is it's not so much like what is Canadian Orthodoxy now, but how are we developing Canadian orthodoxy? And in 500 years, when Canadian orthodoxy does finally develop, what does that actually look like? At this point, it's it's probably worth bringing a bit of definition to the term orthodoxy especially as it relates to this idea of Canadian orthodoxy that we've been exploring here. Because in certain ways, it's a bit of a slippery term in that the initial definition of right teaching or, or, or correct opinion can be used in reference to a variety of different things depending on one's traditional vantage point. For example, evangelicals might talk about an orthodox um, doctrine of inerrancy without any or without necessarily referring to the formal orthodox tradition itself, perhaps defined in reference to the first seven ecumenical councils between 325 and, and, and 787. Um, it's also worth mentioning that because the three of us occupy different spaces within the spectrum of Christianity, you know, with Chris actually identifying as Greek Orthodox and and Doug and I in our respective positions outside, but vaguely within the general orbit of, of Orthodox theology, the term has taken on some unique meaning in the context of our conversations. Um, so I wonder if we could, we could take some time to fill that out a little bit. Orthodoxy, like capital O Orthodoxy to me, is as much cultural as it is Christian. And that's not a bad thing, and that's not an offensive thing to them in any way. Because what they're doing, from my understanding from outside that church, but having studied it a lot at least, um, and I'm sure Chris will have more to say on that, that will be more personal, but it's it really follows this Maximus idea that they are particularly representing 
who they are as a culture, as Christians of that culture. That's That to me is the distinction, right? Because when we talk about lowercase o orthodox, um, I don't believe that either you're part of the right tradition or you're just kind of out there somewhere, right? Tim's been the one to introduce this idea the most, is that it overflows past just what it is to be in the uppercase O Orthodox Church. It's something that can be found in any of these streams of faith. It's this developing cultural idea. But uppercase O is different. It signifies something. But I think Chris will have more to say about that and probably a lot more accurate than somebody who's only studied it theoretically. Well, I don't know about accuracy. You'd have to talk to my priest about that. Um, but I don't know how orthodox I am, but that's maybe the point of orthodoxy, right? Is that as an orthodox Christian, the process of becoming orthodox is the, the is kind of the perpetual perplexing nature of it all. As, as far as what Doug was uh, saying about... Um, it being equally as cultural as it is theological, I, I, I think that's I think that's so well put. Um, that each individual Orthodox understanding, be it Ukrainian Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Armenian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Ethiopian Orthodox, and so on and so forth, um, that each of them does deeply rely on their cultural understanding to inform how what they believe. And like Doug said to them, yeah, like it's it's preservation of it. So whenever I say the word orthodox, I tend not to mean that. Um, <laughs> because I think that as I think orthodoxy, whenever I am referring to a specific parochial kind of orthodoxy, like Greek orthodoxy, I'll, I'll quite evidently say the word Greek orthodoxy. Um, because Greek orthodoxy, for all that it offers, is still Greek and Greek first and probably Greek last as well. Um, and the Greeks have this thing about them where everybody else is, is Christian and everybody else is Orthodox, but they're like the most Orthodox because they're Greek, right? Um, and I'm sure the Russians feel this way too, but there's that kind of thing about it. But that's one of the parochial things that they just have to deal with. To me, Orthodoxy is um, opened up whenever I read uh, Athanasius and then I read Maximus. Athanasius opening up what kind of changed a lot of the assumptions I had about what a lot of the creation myths and a lot of the core assumptions of what how the universe worked changed. Mm. Um, going from this idea that we are all kind of that God physically looks like us, like that's the what the words image of God means, to like, oh, you know, in conversation with the Babylonian creation myths, um, and them, you know, critiquing them. And saying, well, no, the world doesn't work like we're all slaves. We're, the world works is that we're like, we are in the intended blessing to creation. Um, and that's what the word image of God means. And that there's a corruption that happens and that Christ, you know, in Athanasius was on the incarnation, talks about the dispelling of corruption throughout humanity. And then mm -hmm. Maximus just takes it like the next obvious step forward. And he goes, well, you know, there's not just a dispelling of corruption within humanity. There's actually this dispelling of corruption within the entire universe thing that's happening. It's that interconnection, right? It's that really what Maximus is saying is through the process of, theos of theosis. Salvation isn't this thing that you just go and you pray once and you say the Jesus prayer, you know, Bob's your uncle, you're saved, you're going to heaven, we in the orthodox understanding, or at least in the orthodox understanding that I've encountered, this whole orthodoxy thing isn't about going to heaven. Because if it was about going to heaven, we'd all be damned. And there wouldn't be a thing we could do about it. It's like Jesus didn't, 
sure, yeah, Jesus came to save us, but to interpret that as we can all, you know, die and go to paradise feels like it's totally missing the point from an Orthodox perspective. They don't talk about how to obtain the afterlife. They talk about how to be better human beings and how to understand the universe and how to, un how to intertwine and, you know, pull apart these things that we just don't understand. And what's worse is they didn't have the language for it, right? Like they didn't have the word particle. Um, they didn't know what string theory was. So they were just working with all they had. And Maximus, you know, comes up with this idea of, well, he doesn't come up with this idea of theosis, but the word starts really being popularized when he starts using it, right? And that's, I mean, horribly translated, that means to become God, is the idea that within each of every single thing that's ever been created is the divine seed, or if you want to go directly from the Greek, the divine sperm, but I'm not that graphic. Um, and what, what theosis is, which is deeply entwined to, to salvation, is to be growing that divine seed, that we may become more holy, that we may be mm -hmm. saved, right? So the whole, to me, what orthodoxy is, is the process of theosis um, and that perpetual process of theosis. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a priest who would say that that is wrong, but you wouldn't be hard-pressed to find a priest who would say, yes, that's wonderful, and... Yeah. And that's what maybe makes this thing so complicated. Yeah. And I think to deepen that complication at, at a sort of meta level, when we're invoking the term orthodox, on the one hand, we're, we're talking about a recognizable continuity or, or better communion with the historic Trinitarian Christian faith. You know, you, you, can't, just, you can't just make shit up. But on the other hand, and, and perhaps in a truer sense, to invoke orthodoxy is to refer to the emergent process of, of theological, linguistic, and cultural contextualization, which, which forms the backdrop to the historic Trinitarian faith as articulated in her various creeds, doctrines, and, and practices. And so in this sense, even to focus particularly on, on Nicene Orthodoxy as an example, rather than conceiving it as Christianity defined in an abstract and universal sense, it would be more appropriate to think of it as a watershed moment within the gradual establishment of a, an officially Greek iteration of the historically Jewish faith, with the incarnation as the revelatory point of departure. And this played out through the very human processes of, of debate, of, of questioning, the, the formalization of diverse and evolving practices, and at, and at times even, even through appeals to imperial power to secure one's position. I mean, this is, this is evident through, um, through the Arian controversy as a particular example. Now, of course, this, this doesn't invalidate what was articulated, but when you consider the issues which were deemed necessary to debate, and, and the language that is employed in these debates and, and the creedal formulations which emerged out of them to say nothing about the broad spectrum of liturgical and spiritual practices, you're unavoidably confronted not with a universal distillation of the faith, but instead a particular articulation of that faith within the context of the Greek world at that time. I love what my Father Michael Alexa has written about this when he he described it as as not only informative but also normative 
for Orthodox theology, worship, spirituality, and mission throughout the history of the church. And he went on to say that it's, in fact, faithfulness to this heritage, this heritage of, of, of contextualization, rather than any cultural or administrative unity that constitutes the real unity of the Orthodox communion. I think it's also worth adding that this this wrestling with the mystery of God within our dynamic human particularity is evident in the very words of the Hebrew and Greek scriptures themselves. To say nothing of the process of, of canonization and the selection of what should be considered scripture in the first place. For example, it, it, like it's not possible to read the letters of Paul and not come into contact with this. It's, it, it's found in the Gentile controversy, the, the, the discussions about what does it mean to practice and follow the law of God, not as Jews within Judea, but as, as Gentiles within Rome or Corinth or Philippi. All this to say, when, I, when I'm invoking orthodoxy, I, I don't want to refer to it as this static codification of, of boundaries of the Christian faith, but rather... I'm invoking what I see as a continuous process of incarnation as the being of Christ is embodied within disparate and evolving contexts. And it's it's the belief that what is right or common is this idea of one Lord, one faith, one baptism who is over all and in all and through all, and yet found and expressed within different cultural contexts, within different ethnicities, within different languages, within different time periods in history, that there's there's room to be able to say there's no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, but at the same time to understand that there is something that is distinct within those specific locations and histories and languages that can uniquely embody and come to express the person of God. rather than assuming that God is only to be found within one particular culture. Yeah, and that also leads into the the fact that the Christians of those cultures then have to receive that heritage and also receive those questions in a particular way. I mean, as you were talking about what it was in, in this ongoing conversation and this ongoing wrestling, I mean, the best way that I've ever heard theology Um, or at least the teaching of theology described to me was by my father-in-law who described it as a conversation through the centuries, which means, I mean, tying all these ideas together, like Chris talked about theosis, and theosis is something that is explicitly non-individual. And it seems individual if you are an individualist, but to understand theosis adequately, it's this broad thing. So in our individualist culture then, we have to receive the question, how do you embody theosis or Christ when you are individualist? We have to receive the question if every culture uniquely expresses God fundamentally, then what is it to be part of a country that has actually leveraged cultural genocide against mm-hmm. some? We have to receive the question, um, you know, if, if you're orthodox, What is your Greek Orthodox in a Canadian context? If you're an evangelical, what is your evangelical tradition in a Protestant or charismatic or, you know, American-based faith that you've imported here? Does it have a place here or is it just out of place? Is it missing something? You receive all these questions, this new wrestling 
because the conversation isn't done because to be orthodox in a sense is to be orthodox is to wrestle and to deny that wrestling is to miss the point of what it is to be a Christian because taking up our cross does not mean that our government doesn't like us today, right? That's not the essence of what it is to suffer as a Christian. Um, to suffer as a Christian more or less is to understand that your only mooring is your history. And in every other way, every anchor that you have, everything that you have tied yourself to still has to rest on that thing with which you are wrestling, right? And that means finding yourself adrift. That means asking yourself a lot of questions about where your faith can actually sit. It means um, potentially, in in Tim's and my case, um, either stepping away from or revoking or all kinds of things to the church that you were once a part of. Uh, Tim's is the gentler one for the record. <laughs> and understanding that that it means that you have to move or understanding that it means that you have to reject certain ideas or you have to cleave to others. You cannot mm -hmm. not believe others. Um, so it's this really fascinating thing. And this is why it's even worth having a podcast and discussions and whatever that we're obviously not unique in, that we are obviously not pioneering in any way, but that we're just trying to pull these discussions together of this wrestling because as Canadians and as Canadian Christians, we receive this history, we receive these questions, whether or not we happen to be aware of that history. And us three, as a result of the work of many, many others, um, are fortunate enough to be able to be part of that wrestling. That's really all. Yeah. Like what, what you've just described, that is the essence of this whole idea of Canadian orthodoxy that we've been exploring very simply, it's it's the continuation of that deeply orthodox struggle, that wrestling here within the the Canadian context that we find ourselves in. So in order to wrap up this episode, I, I want to be able to finish by setting up a bit of a trajectory for where we hope these conversations might go moving forward. So first of all, the point of this is not to argue for a particular idea, tradition, or position. I mean, all of this began from our conversations as a group of friends discussing and exploring this wide and mysterious religion that we were a part of from our different vantage points. And this remains the goal, even as we seek to expand that conversation and, and to invite others who might resonate with what we are doing to become a part of it. In terms of the format of the show, we'll be alternating between interview episodes with a particular thinker, writer, or leader in the Canadian Christian community, followed by a roundtable discussion or reflection episode where we will flesh out and interact with some of the ideas and perspectives that come up. Uh, this being our first foray into the podcasting world, there will be room to experiment and to adjust as we, as we go along. Of course, if we're seeking out voices that we find to be interesting and compelling, there's always going to be the tendency to lean towards voices that reflect the perspectives that we hold. Um, but even with this bias acknowledged, we, we genuinely do hope to be able to foster a space of conversational hospitality, where we are drawing from diverse voices across the traditional spectrum of Christianity. 
We are continually fascinated and in awe of the wonder, the mystery, and the possibilities of life with God here and now. And in this, we want to allow ourselves to be challenged and expanded in our exploration of all that that could mean. So if, if you've made it this far into the episode and are, are interested in joining as a part of this ongoing conversation, we want to thank you so, so much. We've got a bunch of content that we're really excited to make available. If you want to follow along, um, stay updated with upcoming releases, you can follow me on Instagram at IamTimotheos. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And yeah, we're just really excited to have you along for this journey. And we hope that the discussions of the show can be life-giving and meaningful to you wherever they find you. We'll talk soon. Peace.